Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates in our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and hello, government Hello, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Keller. And today we have our guest, Lauren Dijon Schulman from the Partnership for Public Service. And I believe you've been on the podcast before, but she has spent her career advising senior government officials on strategic planning, good governance, crisis management, and success of fast-paced, complex organizations. So she's the VP of Research, Evaluation, and Modernizing Government, and she leads the partnership's efforts to develop forward-thinking solutions that change the way government works and evaluates our impact. And so a ton of research goes along with your role, and we're going to talk about some of that research today. But first, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Um, I usually am on the other side of the podcast microphone. I ha- I host a podcast, so it's really oh, great excellent. To be well, I, we're happy to to serve that to you. But tell us a little bit about the Best Places to Work initiative and some actionable insights that maybe our listeners will find interesting, or any lessons learned from the report. Absolutely. Okay, so here's the background. Since 2003. The Partnership for Public Service has issued a best places to work in the federal government rankings, which is what we call the most comprehensive assessment of how federal public servants view their jobs and workplaces. So first, let me tell you about how we get that, and then I'll tell you about why it matters. So the Office of Personnel Management does a big survey every year to most federal agencies. Many other federal agencies do their own survey, but they ask very similar questions around the employee experience, um, how they view their leaders, how they view their own performance, how they view their opportunities for professional development. Do they intend to leave or stay? Opportunities for innovation and so much more. And this tells leaders in government around like what their employees experience is like. And I think it's a a reasonable question to say, like, okay, why does that matter? Like, that's cool. I'm glad. It's nice to know as a supervisor how do my employees feel, but why does it actually matter? The best private sector organizations understand and have for a long time that increasing employee engagement, so employees' commitment, their satisfaction, their desire to serve more at work, leads to better outcomes and performance. And federal leaders would learn a lot by following suit, by placing a lot more emphasis on improving employee engagement and workplace culture in the federal government. So we we take the survey data that we get from the Office of Personnel Management and with other federal agencies and using our own calculation, come up with an index score that ranks federal agencies around employee engagement and satisfaction. And this rankings can do so many things. They alert federal leaders to signs of trouble in their workforce. They can provide a roadmap to better manage our government's most important asset, which is employees. It shows success stories and models for federal leaders to learn from like which agencies are experiencing success in some areas right now, particularly around challenging areas like the pandemic or the return of the office. And finally, really cool, job seekers can learn about what are places that people really, really like working and try to focus on applying for those roles. So we do this every year, or more or less every year. We have to base it on when the the federal government does their survey. 
And the the most recent data that we have in full is from 2021. And uh, so I'll just do a couple of quick highlights here. But like, let's remember 2021. That was a weird year. There was a lot going on that year in terms of the pandemic. Uh, The survey was done towards the end of the year. So the Omicron variant was around federal workers only received a 1% pay raise that year. It was the year where federal workers had started to return to the office. Uh, Many of them had to return to the office, but under really kind of dire circumstances around health and safety. And the vaccine mandate was going into effect around the time that the survey was done. So it was a difficult time for for everybody, but it was a really difficult time for the federal workforce. And what we saw... In, that, in the survey results, in the rankings results, was that federal employee engagement and satisfaction went down, went down pretty substantially from 2020 to 2021. And so that was due to all of these things we're talking about, whether it be the experience of the return to the office, the experience of working in an office during a pandemic, that low pay raise, and also like the experience of working through a presidential transition, which is tough no matter what, but was in a particularly tough circumstance going into 2020 to 2021 with the the delays in ascertainment and so on and so forth. So we came out, bottom line, came out of the survey with federal employees saying, look, this has been a tough year, guys. We need some help. We need some more clarity on the return to the office. We don't feel as invested in it as we would like to be. And we need better and clearer leadership around sure. what the so, future work yeah, is. Sure. So, yeah, very, very tough time in any industry, but certainly supporting the federal government. Omicron. I mean, we all thought we were coming out of the pandemic, and then it just kind of hit us in the face again. And so that was the moral of the story: that employee satisfaction in the federal government was down. And so. That that data from 2021, I, I, I know that OPM has finished collecting 2022 data and you have an initial preview. So tell us what are leaders looking for in, in this round of data and how do they look different from the prior years? It's a great question. So as you say, OPM has started to give little hints of the results from the 2022 survey. And folks can find some of that on their website, but there'll be more to follow early next year. And what we found was one, so we don't know the engagement satisfaction score, we're still waiting for all the data. I think we can anticipate just looking at the initial preview that it is going to probably go down again due to some similar circumstances. Pay being a major one, particularly given inflationary pressures. The questions that federal employees had around the return of the office, their score, the scores there definitely got better. We should people should be happy to see that federal leaders heard the challenge, heard that they needed to be better and clearer and more transparent about what the return work is going to look like. But some of the factors that were impacting employees at the end of 2021 are still resident. We are still, as much as we have moved on from many of the issues related to COVID-19, we are still going to work in the middle of a pandemic. And that impacts federal workers not only in terms of how they, in in terms of their workspace and workplace, but also in terms of the demands on them and the expectations of them for delivery and policy. There's also been... In the, on the positive side, there has been so much that the federal government has been asked to do over the last year that is new. The Inflation Reduction Act, the infrastructure bill, and so many more things that are major policy initiatives that are big, new, important, but a bit another demand on federal workers as they are working through all of these challenges. 
So I think we should anticipate hearing when we issue the new best places rankings, I think we should anticipate hearing that federal workers are still under stress, that that we should anticipate hearing more about their concerns about pay. We should anticipate that they continue to place tremendous value on their supervisors, which have been played such an incredible role in the past few years. And I will be really interested to see the views that they offer around diversity, equity, and inclusion and performance, which are some somewhat new, somewhat added questions that are in this survey. OPM added a lot more questions around people's perceptions of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility in the survey in a way that I think will give us a much clearer lens. Let's drill down into a few other arms of the federal workforce, like maybe the intelligence community, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, or the FBI, any of those? Great question. So just one clarifying point for those who have not looked at the Best Places website before, and you will do so after this. I know everyone. So when we do the Best Places ranking, we try to compare similar agencies to similar agencies. And we don't do that by mission. We do it by size. And obviously, every agency is different. Every federal employee experience is different. But we do it based on large agencies, medium agencies, small agencies, and then subcomponents. All right. So the intelligence community and the Office of the Secretary of Defense, they are both in the large agency category. The intelligence community has, for quite a while, been in the top 10, very high scoring in terms of employee engagement and satisfaction, but also in terms of lots of other factors, too. They, This is an area that they have invested in heavily uh, across administrations, across leaders. Some of the things that I see come out on top are not only the employee engagement space, but work-life balance, leadership, and supervision. That these have each been areas that, that through the pandemic, through many of the challenges they've worked through over the past few years, has come out on top, in, not, well, if not quite on top, then a bit, very, very high scoring amongst the large agency sizes. Office of the Secretary of Defense, they are also in large agencies category and not quite as high as intelligence community, but still amongst the top 10. When we say Office of the Secretary of Defense, when we do it in the rankings, it includes the OSD, it includes the joint staff and the defense agencies. So like the Defense Security and Cooperation Agency, the civilian employees are associated with that. And all of the all of these rankings that we're talking about are just civilians, not including military, not including all contractors, including some. So again, OSD in the top 10, they are usually in the top quartile or top half of the large agencies across the board on work-life balance, on leadership, on pay satisfaction and other issues. Actually, they're quite high in terms of pay satisfaction, which I thought was interesting given that they're operating on the same GS schedule as anyone else. FBI is different. FBI is judged amongst subcomponents. And this, in, in 2021, it was in the lower third, like the lower thir- lower 30% of subcomponents in terms of engagement and satisfaction scores. It had a pretty significant drop in its best places to work index score from uh, 2020 to 2021 by 12 points. And that's, for an agency the size of the FBI, is a pretty big drop. The, and the, the issues that we saw that were of most concern to FBI employees were around leadership around supervision, and around the employee return to the office. And those are all obviously linked around the return to the office. People are looking to supervisors, they're looking to leaders to offer clear communication, clarity, policy, an understanding of where they place the health and support of those agency employees 
and clear expectations around performance. So I will be very interested to see in this this current year's data how the FBI may have adjusted to that as every agency is thinking to like, what does this new workplace look like? People talk about the future of work. It's really the work of now. What does this now look like for people? That's a great point. And what does work now look like? I know so anyone working in sort of national security, but especially the federal government are asking those questions. And so that is really interesting about OSD with the pay satisfaction. And I think that really just goes to show that there are so many other components when it comes to employee happiness, if they're operating on the same GS schedule, like they're, they're doing something else, right? It's interesting. We are able to do some comparisons to private sector data. We're not looking at a comparison to the entire private sector, but we have some private sector data that looks at similar questions. And one of the things that has always stood out to me is that even though pay satisfaction is going down in the federal government, or has for the past couple of years gone down, it's higher in the federal government than it is in the private sector. So that we're talking about you know, very different kinds of compensation systems and that the compensation may be higher or lower, but the satisfaction with compensation is higher right now in the federal government than it is in the private sector based on our comparison. Well, yeah, and I'll be interested to see that too as you know things sort of move along in the next couple of years. So uh, hot topic when you talk about the, the future of work is now. With the federal workforce, is are there any changes in terms of teleworking? I know you touched on that a little bit, but as we sort of continue following COVID-19 or still living in it, who knows? Mm-hmm. Tell us about, about that. Bottom line, I'll start with this. OPM started asking additional questions around telework data in the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. And we, we also will hopefully get that from those agencies who do not do FEVS, they do their own survey in some way. For the last couple of years, like there's been a pretty significant increase. I mean, no surprise to anyone. There was a significant increase in 2020 of folks who were not just eligible for telework, but who were making use of telework in some way. But within that, there's a category of people who around you know 20% or more of the federal workforce who are not eligible for telework, whether based on the technical requirements of their job or other elements that are related to their job in some way. Security facilities are one major component of this. People who work in a skiff all day are probably not going to be able to do most of their job remotely from home. That being said, there were some great and interesting innovations that we saw across the board in terms of how people were able to take work that had previously only been done in a secure facility and do it from either remote facilities or from home in some way. And some of that meant being really clear about like what is classified or not. Some of it meant with some really interesting innovations in technology. Some of it was also just recognition that actually some work, it does need to be in a skiff. And just bottom line, we, we, we're, there's not allowances that we can make there. So I think overall, we should expect to see that telework probably is going to go down slightly, in ter- particularly in terms of those who are doing it three or four or five days a week every day. But we do see still quite a significant portion of the federal workforce who is eligible for telework a couple of times a week, or maybe just like once every once in a while, or who are able to do remote work full time. It vary, it's going to vary by agency, vary by role, and vary by location. But I think 
people are still, my guess is people are still in the mindset of what's, how sustainable is this? What's the future here? Will the policy change? Are we going to be hiring for remote workers in the future? There's a lot of questions in people's minds about how sustainable this is going, this is going to be. One thing that I found quite interesting um, in looking at some of our telework trends is just how how it relates to work-life balance, how it relates, relates to views around attrition, whether or not federal employees might try to stay in the federal government, but find better flexible re- remote work circumstances for themselves by going to another agency. And I think agencies are still worried about this uh, and are wondering about how do they get this formula exactly right. And that I mean, the best advice you can offer them is to listen to employees, to listen to them around what is it they're looking for, to, to understand that they're looking for value when they go into the when they're required to go into the office, and they're looking for flexibility that makes sense for them as individuals when they're thinking through telework options. One last point on remote work and telework is something that has been a recent innovation: is you can now, when you look on USA Jobs, you can search for fully remote jobs at this point in time, whereas you couldn't do that before. That suggests to me that at least from an administrative perspective, the federal government sees remote work as a major part of its toolkit now. Lots of agencies had done that individually before, but overall, we're seeing this shift and a shift in opportunity and a shift in our ability to acquire talent by giving people more telework. Sure, well, and I'm certainly hearing definitely on the contractor side, not being able to offer telework has been a huge recruitment problem. And I know on clearance jobs as well, I mean, we have remote listings just because when when you do have them, that's something that you're going to tout as a contractor because it's so high in demand from a candidate perspective. And so sort of continuing along yep. the lines of, I mean, you mentioned employee engagement is really great for retention. And I know that employee recognition can also mm-hmm. boost that retention. And so how about, you know, from a generational standpoint, thinking about getting younger people interested in government and combat some of these recruiting retention and attrition rate problems that we've seen? Great question. Okay, so let's start with some basic facts here that we, for the last, I don't know, I said, in the last year or so, people talked a lot about the great resignation, how quickly people are leaving jobs across the board in the United States. It didn't exactly happen that way in the federal government, though there were some concerning trends. The federal government-wide attrition rate in if FY 2021 was 6.1%, which is higher than 2020, but not crazy different from prior years. However, when you look at the rate of employees who are leaving the federal government under who are under the age of 30, our rate is 8.5%, which is when you're talking like overall numbers and you're talking about wanting to attract and retain young people, that is a very concerning number. Particularly when you understand that only about 7% of federal employees are under the age of 30. Nationwide, when you look at the national labor force, 20% of our employees are under the age of 30. The federal government has a lot of catching up to do when it comes to mm-hmm. attracting and retaining young people. What's interesting to me, when you look at engagement scores, when you're looking at the, the best places index, those who are under the age of 30 or who are just in their first year in the federal workforce, they have really high engagement scores. When you actually manage to get people in and they're in that first kind of honeymoon period, they're great. They're very happy. They're engaged and satisfied. They are committed. 
giving the opportunity to more young people and giving them a circumstance, a professional circumstance where they, they take that honeymoon period and it continues. They want to continue to serve. They have, they continue to have that commitment is going to be a critical challenge for federal agencies. There's also, and I'll pause here so we can get into this a little bit more, but there's some interesting work that's being done right now around tailored retention strategies to make sure that you're doing these, that well, once you get people, employees in, that you're not treating everybody as a cookie cutter and having different tailored but, retention But, you know, th- th- that makes a lot of sense. People are dynamic. Different generations have different perspectives and have experienced different things that has led them to this point in their life. And so I know, like, even just in handling a pandemic or handling anything that's happening within our society, people react differently. People manage their stress differently. So let's talk about agencies not offering or not doing that cookie cutter approach and how it's critical when we have different generations working within the workforce. So we just, at the partnership, I'm really excited about this. We just issued a report on this in the last few few weeks, my generation, which is looking at tailored generational retention strategies, focusing on, in this case, we looked at Gen X, who are, in many cases, leaders or those who are on the cusp of leadership, the future leaders of government, and Gen Z, folks who are early, very early career employees and make up a much, much, much smaller percentage of the federal government. So you can... Anybody can look at these two groups and think like, all right, what motivates them? What incentivizes them? What gets them going? What get, gets them to be committed to their jobs? That's going to be different. It's so often, exactly as you say, many agencies are not taking the approach of like, how do we purposely try to retain them and think through retaining them a little bit differently? A great example of this, actually, that we highlight in the report is FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. They have started taking a much more tailored approach to understanding what motivates and how to retain Gen X and Gen Z employees. And one of the things I thought was fascinating that they found was that when Gen X employees leave an agency, the reasons were most often family-related, issues related with their immediate supervisor, or possibilities for advancement, so like growth in another role. Gen Z, not surprisingly, not the same. Their use issues are usually related to salary or fascinating expiration of an appointment. So that like maybe they were on like on a two-year or one-year term role and they're like, I don't have the opportunity to stay. We've not created that bridge. We go into this in much more detail in the report that even if there are the overall broad issue may be similar in terms of like looking at Gen X and Gen Z, the specifics of what matters to them and how to address that problem with problem or opportunity with them individually is going to be a little bit different. And, you know, instinctively, like that makes sense. People who are compensation questions at Gen X and Gen Z, they're not going to be expecting the same levels of compensation. Also, when you're at a Gen X level, uh, you're probably thinking about compensation as it relates to career growth and career advancement. Whereas Gen Z, you may be looking for something that is a radically different sort of role or different sort of compensation model, or maybe a different model of flexibility. Agencies have the opportunity right now as they are trying to expand the number of young people that they have on the books and who stay in in the federal careers to be really purposeful about how they're recruiting, how they're retaining, and how they recognize that not every generation thinks or talks or works in the same way. And that doesn't 
it's not rocket science to start out like looking at the data that they have, whether it be around the FEBS data, whether it be around what the surveys that are collected when people leave a position, focus groups, on the spot surveys. Like there's lots of ways to look at these. And agencies have already have many of these tools. They already have a lot of this well, data. And, you know, I think it's just going to have to become a routine for these different agencies. It's not ingrained in muscle memory yet. Okay, you know, it's it's cyclical. Here, here we go. This is how we're going to retain, you know, when Gen Z are eventually leaders. It's something that they just need to ingrain in their practices. And like you said, they have the data. It's just things are starting to be thought about a lot differently. And I, I think some of the environments that we've been working in have certainly spurred that. So I think that there are, have been some recent changes to the federal application process. Would you have any tips on how to navigate that? I'll do my best, though. There, there's so much that can be authored on a partnership resource called gogovernments.org. It's got so many answers to all the different questions you might have around uh, the federal application process. I'll offer a few tips that are true for any job application, but I think particularly true for federal government jobs. One is make sure you understand and read through the, the job description and the job application process. For all that we would love to be able to send the same resume to any possible job application, we I think most of us already know that like actually you should tailor it a little bit. With the federal government, you should tailor it a lot. Often they're looking for things in your resume or information on your resume that you might have not included elsewhere. So make sure you read through those requirements. A second piece of it is understand, making sure you're searching for roles that you are qualified for, that are a great, that are accessible for you, and that make sense for you in terms of your career path. Not all of them are open to everybody. Some of them are only open to current employees. Some of them are only open to veterans. Some of them are only open to people who are PMFs or other kinds of circumstances. Make sure you're paying attention to those specifics there. The third thing I would say is. The federal government has gotten much better, still have a lot to go, but has gotten much better at not just posting and praying. They have career fairs. They are going to college campuses. They are producing webinars on specific kinds of roles like data scientists or customer experience specialists. And then putting much more information out there on not only how the application process works, but what they're looking for. Take advantage of those resources, not just in a generic way, but to a degree that you can in a specific way around what exactly they are looking for when they're- Yeah, and I know as you're a job seeker, it, it, it can be so anxious ridden and you really want to get all those applications out. So just take your time, but those are those are great tips. And so I know that we, we we touched on pay a little bit when we were talking specifically about a few different agencies, but I really want to drill down there because pay is obviously really important to federal workers. So what do those satisfaction numbers look like? It had gone down. They went down again. And I think this is not just related to pay raises, but also inflationary pressures. When the survey was, when the Federal Employee Viewpoint survey was done earlier this summer, folks may remember gas prices and the gas prices were up. There were other kinds of concerns around different kinds of consumer goods that were becoming increasingly difficult to find at good prices. And there was not only a lot of actual inflationary challenges, there was a lot of discussion around it. So even if people weren't experiencing it individually, they were hearing about inflation overall. And that absolutely impacted pay satisfaction. I think the other thing that relates to pay satisfaction 
as I was mentioning earlier, there has been so much, so many challenges put at the the front door of federal workers in the past couple of years. Some of them are very comparable to what we see to the entire workforce around working and surviving through the pandemic. But in addition to that, so many new missions have been placed on federal employees in the past couple of years. All things that I think are positive in terms of what we want our federal government to do. But when you're doing a great job and you are you are already a bit worried about pay and you, then you're asked to do even more of a good job thinking about how that compensation relates to the performance expected of you and the, the trust put in and, you. you know, it's going to be on everybody's mind. just talking to other people, I feel like that happened across the board. And, you know, I really hope that these, these reports, these really important reports that you all do really, well, let's hope all of that, the pandemic never happens again. But hopefully it serves as a guide if yeah. other situations, environments change, just to take a look at your employees. And I think it's a good reminder that employees are the heart of government and the heart of, you know, things working in our world. So making sure that employees are happy is pretty important. I thank you for joining me on the podcast today. You teased a little bit to a podcast that you host. So I want to hear a little bit more about that and any closing thoughts that you might have for our listeners. Absolutely. So I co-host a podcast called Profiles in Public Service. And in it, we, my, my co-host Rachel and I, we interview civil servants like they are superheroes because in so many cases they are, and we've never heard their names and often have not even heard about the impact that they have had. What we do in that, we often, we trace their public service path. How do they get it in the federal government? What advice do they have? What have they done? What have they seen that has had incredible impact on the American public? What have they learned in their public service journey? And there's so much that we learn from these individuals about how they touch our health, our safety, our water quality, the access to vaccines, the incredible scientific work that they do, the support to victims uh, of different terrible issues across the country. I mean, it's really, really remarkable. And in addition to being just incredible public servants, they're all great storytellers. They are able to connect what they do and also humble about it with the work of democracy, the needs of the American public, and what they see is the true role of a public servant. And it's such a reward to me to be able to talk to and meet these folks and to be able to give them a platform. That sounds wonderful. So if you are a federal worker or not, and you want to hear more about these superheroes, you need to follow this podcast. You spark an interesting point in my mind. Working for the federal government, there are so many different roles out there. Whatever sort of thing you are imagining in your mind, you should probably just erase it and search what's out there because you can support so many different facets of the government and really do So Lauren, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. Listeners, for more information on the federal government news, career advice, you can visit news.fansjobs.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, known as CISA, the nation's number one cyber defense agency. Today, the agency has grown and evolved, assuring the nation's critical and physical infrastructure is secure, resilient, and reliable. Learn more about CISA career opportunities at www.cisa.gov careers.